May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Live, die, and pay taxes. This is what some think um, we all have to do. These are, these are the only things that we have to do. Live, die, and pay taxes. The, 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 um, the idea comes from a quote attributed to Benjamin Franklin, of course. But he wasn't really talking about this is all we had to do. His, his talk was about the U.S. Constitution. And it had come together and it sort of was in its final form. And he said that it sort of has the shape and the appearance of permanence. Um, the quote goes like this. Our new Constitution is now established and has an appearance that promises permanency. But in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. This is it, right? And it's sort of an offhand joke. Um, it's a joke because it's funny, and it's funny because it's true. There's nothing really that we know that we have to do. We will, if we are alive, die. And if we live under any government, we will pay taxes. I don't care what kind of government it is. And so most people spend their life trying to hold one at bay and re reduce the other, and some foolishly reverse the process. But this is what we are deal with, right? Death and taxes. But we might have just these two certainties in life, but we have a whole lot more obligations than just death and taxes. I mean, I don't know about your life, but I'm guessing that it's a lot like mine. It's filled with a litany of obligations. I mean, I have all sorts of things to do. I'm filled my every day, with, whether it's by law or manners, with a number of things that I just simply have to do. And you the same. You go to the mailbox. If you're at all like me, you flip through the mail. You pull out the stack. The ones that are computer generated, you know, that have your name written in it, you flip past those, right? We're digging. We're looking for something. We're looking for those handwritten notes, right? Imagine you're doing this. You go to the mailbox. See, I do this all the time. I get in so much trouble because they're the only ones I open. The ones that have my name or, or even Abby's name, I don't care. I'll, I'll open up anybody's. It's handwritten. I want to know what's going on in there. But you see your name on an envelope, in script, handwriting. You're excited and you're thrilled for just a moment until you look up into the return address and you see the name up there. Now, every one of us has had an invitation that we didn't really want to accept. You know, it came from, you know, your Aunt Mabel, you know, your cousin Shelly. It came from somebody and you just knew. You knew what was going to be inside that envelope before you even opened it. They're going to invite you to dinner. That dinner is going to be on a weekend. It's going to ruin a perfectly good Friday or Saturday night or, heaven forbid, a Sunday afternoon. You know this is what it's going to be. It's going to be a Sunday afternoon. Your chance to sit back, relax, watch the Browns, go for a hike, ride your bicycle, do whatever it is that you do on a Sunday afternoon. You're going to be spending, celebrating your niece Petunia's sixth birthday. And it's not what you want to do. It's not at all. And, and it hurts. You know, you, you think, There's, I have to go to this. There's no way... Only a ruptured appendix will get me out. I'm putting the wrong side. Will get me out of this. And and if you're like me, you start to Google signs of a ruptured appendix, <laughs> just in case you might want to feign one. You know you won't be able to do it, but you, you you're tempted to. Now I don't know. Maybe you can say you know no to your niece twice removed. I don't know. Maybe you can do that. But even if you can, you have other obligations. Your club your family, your spouse, your roommate, your job, they're there. Somebody will oblige you to do something. 
And so while there may be precious few certainties in life, there are a hearty dose of obligations that we all have. And we've been taught this from our earliest days, haven't we? You remember when you were a little child and your mom, your dad is dressing you and you're saying, why do I have to wear these clothes? This terrible dress, these, this necktie, this cardboard collar, these shoes don't bend and you're little and you're, you're putting up a fight about this. And your mother or father says to you, because we have to dress this way, we're going to a wedding. And you think, well, I don't want to go to a wedding. And you said, you said, all of you, unless you haven't done it yet, you said, I will never do this to my children. I will never do this to my children. And then you did. You hypocrites. I'm a hypocrite too. We all did it, didn't we? We swore we would never do that. And then we became those people who did it. Life comes with obligations. It just simply does. Jesus is answering some of his harshest critics in the gospel lesson today. These men called the Pharisees, and I've told you about them before because they appear in about every third chapter of the gospels. These men called the Pharisees, they are uber-religious. They are super, super religious. They are men who take seriously the Bible and the Ten Commandments and, and all the religious duty. They understand religious obligation. And they're critical of Jesus not because he's a self-proclaimed preacher. They're critical because he doesn't seem to keep the right religious protocol. He seems to dance around his obligations. I mean, he does some things well. You know, he, he seems to be committed to a life of prayer. He, he seems to, um, to understand that he has to go to synagogue. He does this. He, he, goes to all the, he does a lot of the right things, but then he does so many things badly. He, he avoids so many of his obligations. He takes, for instance, um, with little regard, the tradition of the elders. He, he'll do things on the Sabbath that people aren't allowed to do. He, he invites to be his closest friends men without a religious pedigree, fishermen and tax collectors. And he cavorts with all the wrong people. He even eats with notorious sinners. He doesn't seem to be taking this idea of being a religious person very seriously. And this is what angers his critics. This is what makes them say, you know, there's something wrong with you. And in chapter 15, beginning about there, even a little bit before, Jesus begins to address them. He begins to, to address their criticisms of him. And in chapter 15, he answers the question, why do you eat with people who are notorious sinners? It's a short answer. It gives them three little stories. But the short answer is that God cares about people. God is pursuing people. He is pursuing people and wooing them back to himself. He wants to be reconciled to people. And so he is working at that. And, and Jesus is saying, I'm doing what the Lord would have me to do. I'm obliged under a higher constraint. But then in chapter 16, he turns the tables. Chapter 16 is a real turning of the tables. You're accusing me of not living up to my obligations? How about you? How are you doing living up to your religious obligations. And as he does so often, Jesus does this with a story. I love that he tells stories because they're so, they're so infectious. They, you cannot not listen to them. They, they draw you in. They make you answer questions you didn't really want to answer. And this story, today's story, is a once upon a time sort of story. There was a certain rich man, Jesus begins. Just this certain fellow. There was this guy one time who happened to be very wealthy. 
And there's some modifiers that go along. Jesus sort of un, un, uh, opens up a little bit more. He was a rich man. He dressed in purple and fine linen and feasted sumptuously every day. Um, you could translate that feasted sumptuously. He celebrated brilliantly every day. I mean, this is like, he wears the best clothes that people can buy, purple and fine linen. A couple years ago, when I was on that sabbatical journey to, um, to Jerusalem, you know, I'm going for a month. Everything that I have is in a backpack. I wear basically khakis and t-shirts everywhere. Um, I really, you know, I didn't shave for an entire month. I looked pretty scruffy. And um, on my way to Jerusalem, the last stop was I had a day layover in Milan, Italy. Had never been to Milan before. Wanted to see the cathedral. I knew that it was famous. Cathedral's in the city center. In the city center of Milan, this is the fashion capital of the world. Even more than Paris, I think, Milan has really taken over. Places like Armani, uh, Dolce & Gabbana, Machino, Prada, Versace, all those up and down the street. You go there. And in Milan, not only do they sell all this fashion, the entire city feels duty-bound to model it for you. <laughs> so everybody, men, women, children, dressed to the nines, I mean, like you've never seen and here's, you know, Joe looking like he's a homeless person um, with a backpack sitting in a, in a cafe outside, drinking a beer, watching people walk up and down, looking absolutely stunning. And, and I have never felt more underdressed and even worse, more invisible in my entire life. It's like you just can't believe this. This is the image Jesus gives you. This is a guy who could have lived in Milan. He has the best clothes. He has, a, he has this you know, wonderful life that he lives, eats well, everything goes great for him. Eugene Peterson translated it like this. There once was a rich man expensively dressed in the latest fashions, wasting his days in conspicuous consumption. That might be a little pejorative, but this is the sort of image that you get. One more little detail that we get about him, though. He has an extravagant home. We know this because Lazarus is laid at his gate. You don't have a gate in your home in the ancient world unless you're extremely wealthy. Because homes wouldn't be fenced in unless you had the wealth to fence them in. He has this, this gated home, lives in this fantastic home. And then Jesus does this this. Um, master class and telling a story with extreme contrast, right? So here you have this one fellow, life is nothing but just absolute pleasure from one moment to the next. And then you get this, verse 20, the second verse, at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. A rich man, now we have a poor man. Not only poor, he is covered with sores. He is a poor, diseased man. He is so unwell that the, word, the verb is actually not he lay. This is a bad translation in the NRSV that he lay at this man. He was laid. He was physically placed. It's a passive verb. He was laid at this man's gate. To make this, the picture even grimmer, this poor fellow Lazarus is so sick, diseased, and sore covered that he can't even shoo the dogs away who come and lick his sores. I mean, you talk about your exercise in contrast. Um, this is it. 
And then Jesus does what Charles Dickens will do centuries later. He, he, he does something like with, with Ebenezer Scrooge. You remember where he pulls back the curtain to the spirit world? And Ebenezer Scrooge sees things he had never seen before? This is what Jesus does. He, he pulls back the curtain to the spirit world. Both men die. One goes to paradise, the other goes to torment. The one in, in paradise is the one we didn't expect. It's the poor man Lazarus. He's in paradise. The one who's in torment, the rich man. We also discover, and I held this little detail back. The poor man has a name. Did you catch that? The poor man has a name. His name is Lazarus. The other fellow, no name given to him. Just the rich man. Lazarus has a name because you know what? Lazarus actually is somebody. And by giving him a name, he gets dignity. He gets worth. He is not just a, a, a poor beggar. He's somebody's brother. He's somebody's friend. He's somebody's son laying there. He's not just, a, he's not just the garbage by the curb. He's valuable. His name means God has helped. You might say, well, when did God help him? Well, not until after his death, was it? I think it's a temptation to say that this story says more than it does. And so let me just say, in theological talk, via negativa, what it does not say. Okay, It does not say that it is good to be poor and evil to be rich. It does not say that at all. There is no virtue in either poverty or wealth. It, that is not the point of the story. It also is not a lesson on heaven and hell. I think that Jesus does assume that there's a life after this life, but that's not really the point of the story. The point of the story is that Jesus is answering his critics. He's answering his critics about what is religious duty. What is religious obligation really all about? And it is, at the very least, this. That religion means that you are duty-bound not just to God, but to other people. That we are duty-bound not just to God, but to other people. There were people who did the best they could for Lazarus, right? Maybe they didn't have the resources to help him, but they physically carried him to a gate. Where someone had the resources, if not to help Lazarus, to at least alleviate his suffering. And so he had friends who did this. The rich man, he knows Lazarus is there. He sees him day after day. He was not condemned. Listen to me. If you don't hear anything else, hear this. He was not condemned for his wealth. He was condemned for his lack of compassion. That he sees somebody, has the resources to help him, and does nothing to help him. That's why he was condemned. And it comes to us then, doesn't it? I mean, this, this story is one of those stories that just pulls you in and says, well, what about you? What about me? Who's in front of us? Who, who's laying at our gate day after day? Well, yes, of course, people who are in poverty. But even more than that, I think there are greater levels of suffering. I've been poor. I, I, I still am. I know what it's like to, to suffer uh, in that way. That's not the greatest suffering that we can have. There are people who are suffering in many forms. People who suffer from anxiety and depression and needs. Maybe you can't be a therapist, but we could alleviate some suffering, can't we? People who suffer from a lack of love. People who suffer from substance abuse. Other kinds of physical health issues. 
People who suffer at the hands of bullies or cruel bosses or aggressive neighbors. People who lie at our gates. All we have to do is just open our eyes and see them and care. You know this little story. It's, it's famous, but maybe one person hasn't heard it, so I'll, I'll say it again. It's the story of this old man who gets up in the morning and he's walking on the beach and high tide had come in and there are thousands of starfish scattered all over the, the, the shore. And he's walking down, the, the sea, down along the beach and he sees this little boy who's picking starfish up and hurling them into the ocean. The man walks up to the boy and he says, son, what are you doing? And he said, I'm saving the starfish. And the man chuckles and he says to the boy, he says, there are thousands of starfish and only one of you. What difference can you make? And the boy picks up a starfish and he throws it in and he says, I made a difference to that one. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.